This is Portraits of a New Normal. I'm Paulina Cherizova. I'm Celine Mangiola. And I'm Johnny Dorso. We're bringing you a series of podcasts from Annenberg Radio News about how we're coping with our new realities during the pandemic. So, how have y'all been holding up? What have you been doing lately? Honestly, music and yoga have just been getting me through this past year. Nice. How about you, Celine? Jack Black. Black Jack. Celine. Celine, are you on TikTok? Hmm? Oh, sorry, you guys. Um, I got distracted because somebody sent me a TikTok. Sorry, tic-tac-toe what? No, you boomer. It's TikTok. You know, that social media app? It's been getting me through the pandemic recently. I feel like TikTok has been getting a lot of people through the pandemic. And especially new artists. When the music industry shut down, it became harder for new musicians to break into the music business. So, more and more young artists have taken to TikTok, trying to showcase and promote their music. Marlies Duncan has the story. Tucker Rivera is a political science student and athlete at a prestigious university in Chicago who had dreams of making music in the future. Then, during the pandemic, he threw up a snippet of a song on TikTok. All my high school friends are getting married young. And then, boom, overnight, it's like, hey, you have a fan base that thinks you're famous. And I'm like, I don't know. Like, this is just as new to me as it is to you guys. Like, I, <laughs> and so that's been really, that's been really interesting. The song about dreams of being famous has now given the 22-year-old his first taste of fame. It got 1.1 million views, and I went from like 1,200 followers to 50,000 followers in the span of, you know, a week. And it was, it was just surreal because it's like everything I've been shooting for. The TikTok views also led to 5 million streams on Spotify. TikTok is a social media app where people can make quick videos showcasing anything and everything, ranging from pet videos to poetry to political commentary. Since the start of the pandemic, the app has been growing exponentially. LA Times pop culture critic Michael Wood says music artists have been flocking to the app as well. Suddenly you can't play shows um, and you can't do club appearances and you can't do a lot of the normal things that acts were used to. and so. A lot of people turned to pretty much the only place they could tune to, which was online, sort of digital space. Rivera was one of those artists who shifted gears and started posting on TikTok during the pandemic. The whole plan was to graduate school and then move to LA and, you know, work a nine to five and, and in the evening time sort of grind out music until something caught on. But TikTok accelerated that plan, to say the least. Like Rivera, Samara Bradley was in a similar position of wanting to break into the music industry, in the traditional sense. She graduated from Cal Arts as a vocalist in 2019 and had an album planned. I, I felt like 2020 was going to be my year musically, and then I ended up like not being able to do any, anything. Yeah, it was, it was something. So like many others, she joined TikTok. She began by posting her own music, but then realized that wasn't the way to go. Instead, she said she used her favorite fifth grade party trick. I'd be like, oh, I know how to sing this song in Simlish. Yep, that's a made up language from a popular role-playing game called The Sims. 
no one else is doing that. It's funny. It's fun. Some like TikTok people are so weird. Like someone else is going to like it. And that's when success happened. I got like 15,000 followers from like singing in Simlish. And I, I'm like, this is crazy. And people started looking at my account and then they saw like videos of my song and they were like, oh, I'm streaming this right now. Pop culture critic Michael Woods says the difference between TikTok and other platforms all comes down to the algorithm. Which is, you know, their proprietary algorithm that they're very proud of. And it just serves up things that it'll think it thinks you will like. And so you're, it, it's a real tool of discovery. And that's why you have so many songs by unknown new artists exploding on TikTok. Some of the time it's because they've been proactive in getting their music into the sort of TikTok bloodstream or the same could be true of their labels. But other times there's something a little bit random about it, kind of pleasingly random. One of the biggest examples of the hit making power of TikTok is Lil Nas X in his song, Old Town Road. I got the horses in the back, horse stock is attached. But Wood says Lil Nas X may be the exception. As for other artists... It's very difficult to imagine them becoming anything other than a one-hit wonder. Um, and yet that hasn't stopped Columbia Records or Republic Records from signing just tons of TikTok sensations um, because the streams of a big song there's so much money to be made that it's almost like, well, yes, it would be great if this person could make another hit, but if not, we're still getting quite a bit of money for that one hit. For many TikTok users, after one video goes viral, the next videos posted don't tend to reach the same level of viewership. Creating and maintaining a fan base on TikTok is especially hard for musicians and singers. After that million point two, video right the next week you're on the for you page a lot and then after that it's like i had 1200 followers again and mm -hmm. so it's just a matter of pushing out as much content as possible and hoping that just by the law of large numbers you get something that you know hits it bradley also has the same problem i'm, tr I'm trying to keep the hype going so when i i noticed it's finally started to come down a little bit i was like oh no like and then literally for like three days after it started, like my videos were not getting any views. It was like ridiculous. These artists are trying to avoid one hit wonder status. They say they'll keep mining TikTok even after the pandemic is over, trying to launch their careers into the music industry. I'll keep doing the Simlish songs. And like, I mean, the fact that like the Sims like followed me and posted my video, like, I guess I'm doing something right. So I just, I hope my account can like actually keep growing and that they like actually start showing it to more people and like I beat the algorithm. You know, my most actual fans, right? All came from TikTok. It would be silly for me seeing like the success of so many, so many artists on TikTok who have just been able to get genuine deals and genuine fame in a time where they can't even meet people. Right. That's, I mean, I mean, that's a special thing. In the come and go world of TikTok, 
reaching genuine fame is sure to be a challenge. Both Rivera and Bradley say they look forward to actually seeing audiences and interacting in person, in the real world, rather than just the digital world. For Annenberg Media, I'm Marlies Duncan. Now, on a different note, we have two stories tackling some issues our nation has been facing. Since the pandemic began, Asians have been experiencing more racial-based attacks. But it was not until the Atlanta shooting that the media started paying more attention. Xuanning Gao tells us about the impact on Asian American students and community leaders in Southern California. The following story includes some contents of violence from the recent anti-Asian incidents. Please take care while you're listening. In January, Martin Zing, a Chinese graduate student at USC, carried his eight-month-old child to return home at Orsini apartment in Los Angeles. It should have been a normal day, but a man without a mask ruined it. When the elevator reached the first floor, a person came in without wearing a mask. So I pushed a, my baby stroller to the side because I don't want my baby to get COVID. That man just keeps saying F-words and he yelled at me and he said go back to China. Martin Ding is just one of thousands who have faced anti-Asian racism since the pandemic began. According to the group Stop Asian American and Pacific Islander Hate, about 4,000 anti-Asian incidents have been reported in the U.S. However, these incidents hardly appeared in any major news outlets for almost a year. Activist Amanda Wynn, a social movement entrepreneur, pushed for coverage in an Instagram video posted in February. She demanded journalists to cover more stories about anti-Asian violence. We matter, and racism is killing us. I'm asking everyone who sees this to share and tag CNN, MSNBC, journalists with massive platforms like Rachel Maddow, Anderson Cooper, to cover our stories. It took a mass shooting in Atlanta to get more immediate attention. We have new information this morning on the attacks around Atlanta that killed eight people on Tuesday, including six Asian women. Since then, the mainstream media started to cover a huge number of Asian American stories. A wave of violence against elderly Asian Americans putting communities across the country a on Brooklyn end. community comes together to fight the rise in anti-Asian attacks. disturbing rise in attacks on Asian Americans from California to New York. Racism against Asians is not a new problem in the U.S. The history of Asian oppression is long and dark. In the 1800s, Chinese immigrants arrived in the U.S. with dreams of taking part in the California Gold Rush. But soon, they were hired as cheap labor to build the Transcontinental Railroad. As anti-immigrant sentiment grew, Chinese immigrants were accused of stealing jobs. That's why a mob attack happened. During the attack, 19 Chinese people were shot, beaten, and hanged. It was one of the biggest mass lynchings in the U.S. history. The Chinese Exclusion Act followed a few years later. Then, anti-Asian sentiment flared again during World War II with the Japanese internment. The sense of Asian Americans being perpetual foreigners has lingered all these years. And former President Donald Trump used his rhetoric during the pandemic to launch onto the anti-Asian sentiment. COVID, that name gets further and further away from China as opposed to calling it the Chinese virus. Jonathan Wang is the director of USC Pacific American Student Services. I think the political rhetoric um, has exacerbated the issue to an extent to make it 
seem like it's a normalized uh, occurrence. I think it creates the sense of anxiety and stress uh, and definitely the psychological and emotional toll. President Joe Biden recently tried to reverse the hatred Donald Trump has incited against the Asian American community. This year, he signed an executive order about advancing racial equality and a memorandum combating anti-Asian racism. Some people felt optimistic about Biden's policies. Jerry Rayburn, a member of the Thai Community Development Center, hoped Biden could make actual steps to help Asian Americans. My expectation is that Joe Biden is going to use the resources of the federal government to combat this xenophobia of, and the scapegoating of Asian Americans. Racial aggression or racist behavior it needs to be combated、uh, from a public health perspective and an education perspective. Others, like Wang, are skeptical. I am not naive to the fact that a memorandum will solve any of this. I think it is a step. Um, to actually signal to folks that it's something serious. More than a thousand people turned out to demonstrate in the LA Korean Town neighborhood recently. Protesters wore red T-shirts saying "Stop Asian Hate." They held signs reading "Protect Asian Lives," "Hate is a Virus," and "Stop Killing Our Women and Elders." Similar rallies have happened nearly every weekend in cities around the country to let more people know about the anti-Asian violence and to dispel the myth of Asians as perpetual foreigners in the land that is their home. For Anber Media, I'm Shannon Gao. Eyes across the country turn to an Amazon warehouse in Alabama. As it became the center of growing labor movement, activists, organizers, politicians, actors, and musicians all showed up in support for what was shaping up to be a historic call for workers' rights. Now, after suffering a highly publicized loss, union advocates plan to build for the future. Max Stores has the story. In March, Senator Bernie Sanders and rapper Killer Mike led a rally in Bessemer, Alabama, supporting the unionization efforts. They won't treat their people right. Who are we if we stand on the side of evil just to get a package to our door two days? Union is not going to solve it all, but what it does do is allow you a seat at the table. Other vocal supporters included the NFL Players Union, actor Danny Glover, and even President Biden. You know, every worker should have a free and fair choice to join a union. The law guarantees that choice. Despite the apparent breadth of public support, the vote came and went, and the union was decisively rejected. Amazon employees in Bessemer voted against unionizing by two to one. After that vote failed, organizer Chris Smalls created the Amazon Labor Union. He saw what happened in Bessemer from the ground and hoped to use the loss there as a blueprint for building a new union by and for Amazon employees. Smalls worked for Amazon for five years. He was fired alongside others last year at his Staten Island warehouse after protesting a lack of COVID-19 hazard pay and protective clothing. The New York Attorney General's office has filed a lawsuit against Amazon over the Smalls case, worker safety, and retaliation. Smalls says he began the Amazon labor union to prevent others from receiving the same treatment he did. You know, I poured my blood, sweat, and tears into this company for almost five years. I was a great employee. A great supervisor, 
And at the end of the day, this company did nothing but turn their back on me. The first question for Smalls and other union advocates to ask is, what happened in Besmer? The Besmer plant had just opened up right about the start of the pandemic. A few months in, essential workers at Amazon facilities started complaining about unsafe conditions. That's when a handful of workers in Besmer started reaching out to the retail, wholesale, and department store union. RWDSU organizer Chelsea Connor says these conditions motivated workers towards a vote to unionize. I think more broadly, the labor movement is looking to this as a call to action among workers who've been mistreated throughout this pandemic, um, but who've also been mistreated as we've reverted as a society to e-commerce and manufacturing. Workers and filed a petition in November to hold a union vote at the Bessemer Warehouse. Connor says Amazon responded with a series of legal challenges to block the union from taking hold. And Susan DiPrizio is a civil rights activist who lives in Bessemer and organized several pro-union demonstrations. She said, in December, the city changed the streetlights so workers wouldn't stop and talk to union organizers standing slash recruiting at the edge of the Amazon property. DiPrizio says the tactics amount to intimidation. She says Amazon cut union access to the workplace by firing petitioners, distributing anti-union training material, and offering bonuses to workers who refused to vote. These tactics were especially successful due to Alabama's current labor laws. They give corporations much looser restrictions on reasons they can fire employees. Because of these laws, it is easier to prevent workers from organizing. Chelsea Connor explained why organizing in the South is so important for the RWDSU. What the Bessemer battle stands for is so much more than Amazon and so much more about what is happening in the Southern United States, which is that companies are running to anti-union, right-to-work states to open up shops to prey on workers who don't have a union voice in their workplace. Despite this, the majority of Amazon employees in Bessemer voted the union down. The Besmer Warehouse brought competitive wages to the community. Meanwhile, some union advocates say workers saw the RWDSU as an outsider looking to change things. The Besmer campaign taught Smalls that internal pressure is necessary to get workers invested in unionization. He believes that Amazon workers should build their own union. Well, we learned what we could say we learned of, of how we're going to have to connect with these workers. That's the reason why we chose to go the independent route and create a ALU, because we realized that uh, trying to have an established union, uh, sometimes it doesn't have a good taste. Smalls wants Amazon workers to know about the benefits they used to receive and should demand for again. This includes higher payment, a stake in the company, and performance bonuses. Although the Besmer union vote was unsuccessful, Small says the labor movement within Amazon shows no signs of stopping. The ALU is moving to authorize a vote at the Staten Island warehouse. We all are Amazon workers, and we're all creating this together. So the fact that we're able to connect like that, that's a different type of connection, a different type of relationship. That, that seems to be working. Small says that the momentum and publicity from the Besmer effort is helping unionization become a closer reality for Amazon employees around the country. For Annenberg Media, I'm Max Thors. Thanks, Max. 
We all know Amazon is run by the richest man in the world. But who runs the world? Girls. For only the second time in the USC's student government history, two girls will serve as the president and vice president for the upcoming school year. These leaders also won their posts after campaigning in a historic election, USG's first ever remote election because of the coronavirus pandemic. Nicole Antunian has the story. This is a campaign video for the new USG president and vice president. Alexis Arreyes, the USG president-elect, is a political science student. She and her running mate Lucy Warren, an economic student, were sitting in their weekly Senate meeting when they found out they had just been elected on the USG cabinet. Looking back, Arreyes acknowledges it wasn't an easy feat. In, in, in any given year, campaigns are difficult, right? But I think the pandemic obviously posed a whole, you know, slew of new challenges. With the absence of the bombardment of campaign signs on Truesdale Parkway, candidates were forced to think outside the box. Without the ability to meet people face to face, the team needed to find creative ways to gain voters. Dora Kingsley Verturnan is an expert in political consulting, election campaigns, and social media. She says that amid the pandemic, social media and technology actually provides an advantage. There's nothing that replaces, you know, the handshake, the personal touch, the standing out on the avenue, you know, talking at lunch out, you know, out on any of the quads. But um, the truth of the matter is using and leveraging technology lets us reach a lot more people. And that's exactly what Arias and her team did. They used everything social media could offer to reach as many people as possible. They answered people's questions on Instagram and Facebook Live, Zoom interviews, and in their original videos. They created websites and even a podcast so that people can also access their campaign outside of the social media sphere. But the team wouldn't have been able to publish as much content as they did without one essential person. I think our video, again, our videographer really set the tone. That's Lucy Warren. Arreyes' running mate and vice president. Warren says without their videographer, people might not have engaged with their campaign at all. In their videos, Arreyes and Warren showed their priorities for inclusion and protecting fellow Trojans. Returnin says thinking on a community level like Arreyes' team has demonstrated is part of becoming a successful candidate. So I think it's important, particularly for student leaders and people who are campaigning, again, to Stop thinking about sort of the individual or even the issue, but thought, start thinking about communities of interest and the people who want to be together to get something accomplished. And then the politics becomes secondary. The leaders plan on continuing their social media tactics throughout their term. Specifically, Warren says they hope to create a new USG president and vice president Instagram account so that students can continue to engage with the cabinet. We want to revamp, you know, our current, you know, USG Instagram and make it more people centric, really make sure we're, we're highlighting the advocacy projects that we're doing. Um, you know, we had that post with that was one of our highest engagement that just showed the projects that we're currently working on. Arreyes agrees. She says social media is a great way to become more accessible to students. Beyond just our campaign, every single campaign, every single candidate that was in this race um, just 
came up with some really like innovative, creative ideas on how to utilize these platforms. And so it was really, really cool to see. I think it will set the tone um, in, for future elections in a lot of ways. If there's anything the pandemic taught the USG, it's to get creative in any way you can, even on social media. For Annenberg Media, I'm Nicole Antunia. Rather than being creative, for some students, doing everything online has caused more of a distraction. The pandemic has forced students of all ages to switch from traditional in-person learning on campus to online learning from home. Many college students say it's much harder for them to retain lessons delivered on a Zoom screen, especially if you have learning disabilities. Others say they see advantages to online learning and off-campus life. Kimia Rabar has the story. Shani Gabby is a business student at USC. She is one of the many students who prefer in-person learning over online. Given her learning difference, she says the past year has been particularly challenging for her academically with Zoom classes. I struggle a lot with online learning because I already have ADHD and ADD, as I said before. So just being in an environment where I have to sit and just stare at a computer makes it way harder to focus. Before the coronavirus pandemic, Gabby said she found herself most productive while working in class or even in study rooms. But over the past year, she's attended her Zoom classes from her apartment near USC campus where she's transformed part of her makeup vanity into a study desk. She says this environment is not conducive to her learning style, but living with roommates has made it difficult to claim a designated study spot. The online exper learning experience has definitely exacerbated my ADD and ADHD symptoms. If I see like my skincare stuff, I'll start putting my creams on just because I'm bored or doing my makeup because I'm bored. Maria Ott is a professor of clinical education at USC. She says online learning can be a distraction for some, but it may actually prove efficient for others. There is a high level of cognitive demand in the online environment because you have to be really prepared to engage. Uh, and that's not to say that you don't have to do that in a brick and mortar environment, but there's a lot of interchange, a lot of things happening simultaneously. Ott says that she has observed that her students interact with each other better using Zoom, given the platform's unique features. Specifically, the chat feature and the breakout room feature on the platform, she says, has allowed her students to exchange ideas more seamlessly. For other students, like Josh Mora, online learning has been much more effective and efficient. Mora is a business administration student at USC. I feel 100% more focused while uh, it, classes are online. Mora says that when classes were in person, he often had to scramble to write notes and would worry about missing information and falling behind in class. But with the features of online learning, he feels a lot less stressed. Because everything's recorded and online, um, I can uh, just go back if there's something that I missed. Um, so I don't really feel that pressure to kind of uh, get everything down as the class is going on. I know that I, I'll, on my own time, can review it um, and learn it that way. Mora says that the best parts about online learning are the comfortability and flexibility of being able to take classes anywhere and not having to rush to get to classes on campus. I did classes while I was in California and LA or even at home or even, you know, Minnesota visiting someone and uh, it just allows me flexibility of like kind of where I'm, I want to be. Um, I don't have to be, you know, stuck in a life. Ott says that the pandemic may have actually changed education indefinitely, explaining that educators may actually continue to practice some of the online learning tactics they have adopted. There may be 
more blended experiences where a professor might have the traditional brick and mortar in-person classroom, but perhaps there will be times where they might say, this week we're gonna meet online. And there may be a real purpose for doing that. I think that we've learned a lot and that it won't go back to being just the traditional classroom. I think both the professors and the students have, they've learned something about themselves as, you know, uh, educators, the teacher, and then the student. As we soon turn the corner in the pandemic and transition back to normal life, the question now becomes, what learning obstacles will students face after finally getting into the groove of online? Will those with disabilities transition back to normal immediately? We'll find out in the fall. For Annenberg Media, I'm Kimira Abar. As classes moved online this past year, students in schools across the country have struggled to meet new people and interact with their classmates outside of the virtual world. A big part of graduate school is building relationships and creating networking connections for international graduate students in one-year programs that has been especially hard. Phil Rosen has more. The pandemic has left its mark on some of the brightest young minds in the country, forcing many of them to complete their degrees entirely on Zoom. That means a lot more isolation and potentially fewer friends compared to ordinary times. With COVID, it's really harder. You have to put much more effort into, into like meeting people. That was Ruben Abrigel, a graduate student at Columbia University. He's from Paris and studies financial math. This year, he's been living in Manhattan, but like many of his classmates, he spends most of his time on his computer in a small apartment in the middle of what used to be a bustling city. The purpose of doing a, such a program, you know, is to meet people, to, to connect, Unfortunately, hard to, to connect with people. Like from Colombia, I didn't meet a lot of people. Abrigel felt like he didn't have a better alternative. What else was he supposed to do during a pandemic? At least he could emerge with a shiny new graduate degree from a top university. I got, uh, I got some internship at Goldman, but I'm sure that the name of Colombia made like a huge difference. He felt good about pursuing graduate school because a lot of job hiring stopped during the pandemic. I think it was the best decision uh, I made. So no, I didn't. I don't regret that whole of uh, doing uh, about doing uh, Columbia. Completing a graduate degree during the pandemic is still productive and can make students more competitive when the job market opens up. But even so, far fewer international students enrolled for school during the pandemic. A recent survey revealed a 43% drop in new international student enrollment for U.S. schools in 2020. Chong Hao Lao, another graduate student in Abrigail's program at Columbia, has been doing his classes from Macau, China this year. He finds it easier to manage the workload. People think it's harder because they can't see peers. I think it's easier because all the exams are online or taken home or whatever. So I prefer that format because I don't have to cram as much. Lao took things in stride this year and saw this simply as another opportunity to do what had to be done. If I was in New York, I would have been online anyway. So it's not that being in Macau was a problem. It was the pandemic, it was a problem. So given the pandemic has happened, it's not the remoting that's making it hard, it's the pandemic itself. It, it, there's no way it could be easy. From the same time zone nearby in Beijing, China, Draco Guan, a graduate student in USC Annenberg, has been taking his classes online too. 
This means he takes classes at two or three in the morning, like Lao. He feels like he's burning the candle at both ends. One day, I need to be the night owl, and then in less than 24 hours, I need to be the early bird. Late night classes aren't the hardest part. It's the next day that really hurts. If I'm doing the classes at two o'clock in the morning and it ended at four o'clock and then I got very excited during classes and then it's very hard for me to fall asleep afterwards. Both Guan and Lao say the universities have made lecture recordings available but neither think this is the best option. They can watch lecture recordings but this means they aren't there to participate in class discussions and they can't get live interaction with teachers and classmates. Especially in graduate school, there's more to class than just memorization. So skipping live classes for recorded lectures just doesn't cut it. It makes no sense for me to read the transcriptions and paying a bunch of tuition fees and, and, and just read the recording. It's, it's really, I'm paying the same amount of tuition fees, but I'm doing the Zoom University. For Abigail, Lao, and Guan, they can look forward to meeting their fellow classmates in person after missing out on a year of face-to-face -face commiserating. At the end of the day, the three of them will be emerging with new graduate degrees, primed to enter the job market as more competitive applicants than they were before the pandemic. For Annenberg Media, I'm Phil Rosen. It's not just graduate students or international students. College sophomores have also had their particular issues to deal with. Annenberg Media's Sydney Rocket has more about the sophomore experience. Sydney, stop! Get out! <laughs> this is Stanford University sophomore Darren Rocket trying to learn online at home, but being distracted by her sister Sydney, me. Sydney, I'm gonna hit you with my hydro. <laughs> In the middle of her freshman year, the pandemic forced Darren to move back home and do her schooling online, just like thousands of others. It was a hard pullback after just getting started on campus. Might have to hold back some tears because it is very traumatic to build this community and then suddenly be ripped away from it. That was just like really hard, especially because none of us were anticipating anything ever happening like this. Most college students have hopes and dreams of finding new friends, learning more of what they're into, and getting the overall college experience. COVID-19 shifted the reality for many students like Darren. It felt like going backwards. Darren felt like she was pushed back into an upgraded version of high school. She did not have the same freedom that she had on campus. At home, she felt like she couldn't be her true self. Things got so bad for Darren, she hardly left her room. I had to coerce her to get dressed and go for a walk outside. Our mom, Janae Rocket, noticed it too and started getting concerned. So I watched her slowly change and it was a very sad thing to watch. She didn't want to get up a lot of days. She always wanted to do her work. She stayed on her schoolwork game, don't get me wrong. But she didn't want to come out of her room or she'd get her food and go back in her room, did her work in her bed. She was just like um, a way that I'd never really seen her before. I asked my sister about it directly. She fidgeted with a water bottle cap when she answered. How was like your mental stability when you were at home rather than at school? I was mentally unstable and I had to seek therapy as a result of like pandemic related stress. For some people, mental health issues and online learning can go hand in hand. Scarlett Jackson is an expert in student learning and performance. She is also a school psychologist for several high schools in Southern California. She describes a recent Texas A&M study on college students' mental health involving nearly 200 sophomores. Out of those, 71% showed um, higher 
anxiety and depression due to the uncertainty of am I going to go back to school, am I not having to go back home, the uncertainty of their health, their safety, the safety of their parents, grandparents. Jackson says all the confusion adds to the anxiety. Students, when they already had a planned, this is what my college is going to be, now it's, that's off the table. So now all their plans are in the air. So that's got to give you an uncertain feeling. You know what I mean? You're not comfortable. Jackson says even before COVID, people lacked social skills because they were stuck behind their smartphones. And now things are worse. The concentration has gone down. There's stress and anxiety. They get in the way of your concentration. Sitting in front of a laptop when you're not interacting, you get bored. If you're not interacting, you just kind of think about other things. So the attention span has gone down. The learning has gone down. Luckily, Darren was allowed back on campus at Stanford in January due to her mental health circumstances. She needed to be around her peers and surround herself in a healthy environment that would promote her learning. It's helped because now I'm with my friends. So we've just been like spending a lot of time together and it just feels really good to be around other people in the same circumstance who understand how hard it is. Our mom has seen notable changes in my sister's behavior now that she is back on Stanford's campus. She's having a great time. She's with a few of her closest um, doormates. They're having a good time. There's always some highs and lows, but I'm watching her. She's making the best of it. She recently pledged um, a sorority in which she's enjoying that. She's involved in a lot of things on campus, and now she's a runner. So she's up and running around the campus, and she's having a great time. Stanford plans to reopen its campus for in-person instruction in the fall, provided there is no spike in public health concerns. And like a lot of campuses around the country, students are required to be fully vaccinated. Current college sophomores will soon be juniors and have to deal with the loss of over a year and a half of their in-person college experience. Darren says that she can't wait until the atmosphere of her campus is restored again. For Annenberg Media, I'm Sydney Rocket. of a new normal. I'm Paulina Cherzova. I'm Celine Manjola. And I'm Johnny Dorsal. Coming up, we'll take a look at how the pandemic has actually been a motivator of sorts, from launching new businesses and business models to helping others find a new way of exploring their interests. We've got it all covered here on Annenberg Radio. Thanks for listening. One of the industries hit hardest by the pandemic has been the nightclub scene. Annenberg Media's Caitlin Hernandez has the story of how one LA club found a new way to keep its community connected. One of Los Angeles's biggest queer hotspots is Club Cobra. The North Hollywood Club is one of the last Latinx LGBTQ spaces. On Friday nights, the club would be packed with people dancing to loud music under neon lights. The founder has invested 20 years into the community in a black building on Burbank Boulevard. He's had Caliente Gogo dancers, drag shows in Espanol, and the longest running trans Latinx night in LA. 
when COVID-19 hit, all that shut down. He had to get creative. The future of gay entertainment is in the home because even when the nightclubs are reopened, right, you're no longer going to be putting 500 people into a room. You're going to be putting 80 people into a room. That is Marty Sokol, the founder of Club Cobra. When the club was open in person, guests would be greeted by Sokol in his jeans and t-shirts. Now, the host has pivoted to filming content for OnlyFans, sporting stylish suits and ties. OnlyFans is a platform where people can pay to subscribe to their favorite creators to view often salacious photos and videos. Personally, we've always felt that gay nightlife is an important, it's actually an integral part of gay culture. So the Clubhouse show is really about the environment of fun that we've managed to put together over the last 20 years. Cobra's fog-filled exotic dances are filmed at his home without nudity. One of the programs that Sokol says he's trying to bring back is based on the club's show Transfix. It's the only trans-focused night in LA, run by trans women. It's been a place where trans people could come for advice, friends, and safe hookups. Most of all, it's been a special community for trans people to share experiences. I think that's what, that's why people loved Cobra so much. You know, it felt like a family, like a family place, even though it was a nightclub. That is Aubrey Barcelada, Transfix's director. She's also performed at the club wearing revealing fringe bustiers and lingerie. Barcelona isn't sure yet if she'll be involved in OnlyFans. Most of her trans performers already have accounts of their own, so she doesn't want to compete with them. But Transfix has been a popular event for years in the trans community. She isn't worried about the event fading away. I would say Transfix has a life of its own. So it doesn't need the, the maintenance that, uh, and the upkeep that, uh, you know, the rest of the nights of Cobra need. People won't forget it. Initially, Transfix performers would appear on OnlyFans, but they were still learning what performed well and how. Nudity is popular, but Sokol wanted to make it where people could watch it together. And it's something that if your mother walked in the room, she might laugh and sit down with you. That is, if you have a very open-minded mom. OnlyFans is the platform, a little bit more risky. Obviously, we don't show any uh, nudity on the OnlyFans, but it's just, you know, like uh, Latin guys go dancing and, and getting in the pool, just very sort of erotic uh, content. The Club Cobra team made it work despite expensive costs. They use high-quality lights, camera gear, and editing software to produce the shows every week. Anthony Tadros is the self-described jack-of-all-trades for Club Cobra, hailing from Sydney, Australia. He's worked for Sokol for almost five years, doing everything from bartending to booking talent. Now he films a show. He says Club Cobra's pivot to OnlyFans has helped the team connect more as a family. This is not the first hardship we've ever experienced. It probably won't be the last. But that doesn't mean we just quit and give up. We're a passionate family. We, we, we take care of each other. The reason we're doing it is to keep our heart and our energy and our passion alive. That passion has resonated with supporters of Club Cobra. They promote the OnlyFans content on social media, and Tadros says that helps remind people that they're still around. People have reached out in support, sharing how much they've missed the club and love seeing it in another form. That's 
so rewarding itself. You know, these people aren't, our customers aren't able to see us in person at the moment, but it's such a reward to know that just seeing us on their TV screen brought that joy back to them. Sokol has big plans to bring back Club Cobra, but for now, he's tight-lipped on when and what that will look like. Since Sokol believes gay entertainment's future is in the home, he says people will still be able to find Club Cobra on the platform even after it reopens in person. For Annenberg Media, I'm Caitlin Hernandez. While nightclubs were figuring out ways to keep the party alive at home, the only fans watching ball clubs last year were probably celebrating home runs from their couches. But now that baseball parks are back open, fans are back in the game. After a year of shutdowns, sports stadiums in California are at least partially open now. And it happened just in time for the start of the 2021 baseball season. Dodgers superfans have been super celebrating. But over the last year, how have diehard Dodger fans been able to keep their passions alive through this deadly pandemic? Jacqueline Andrade tells us about some of them. Yes, it's the home opener. Yes, they're about to get those World Series rings. But I think the thing that is most special about today for a lot of us is that this wonderful place is about to get its voice back. This past year, a lot of Dodger fans say it felt like nothing could stop them from cheering on their boys in blue, not even a pandemic. But with the recent opening of LA Stadium, some fans can hardly contain their excitement. Able to walk back in to Dodger Stadium and actually watch a live game one of the best feelings I've had in a long time. I mean, almost tears, just because like I said, it's been so long, waited too long to be there, catch a game. The atmosphere, it was less people, but still you could feel it. Just everyone around was excited to see the boys in blue. That was Francisco Huerta, who was one of the 20% in attendance for the home opener. Although fans are excited to be back at Chavez Ravine, the looming threat of another shutdown due to the coronavirus pandemic weighs heavily on every game. Last year's shutdown cut the season in half and moved the World Series game to Austin, Texas. I wished we could have been there in the stadium and watching the games. It was great to see, but I mean, it's just that feeling of being in the stadium and watching the Dodgers play. It's one of the best feelings as a Dodger fan. To many people in LA, the Dodgers mean more than baseball. The fans say the team brings communities together almost like a family. This Dodger organization is built on fans, nothing like Chavez Ravine packed with 56,000 fans. Nothing better than that. And the culture and the diversity of Dodger Stadium, I mean, there's nothing like it. That was Michael Alejandro, a diehard Dodger fan in the San Fernando Valley. He is hosting block parties in his neighborhood to keep away from larger crowds at the stadium. I'm planning to have a rager at my house with the whole, you know, 50 people, as long as everyone has the vaccine. I'm perfectly happy for them to come over. But yes, I'm planning to have a block party for opening day to try to w watch the ring ceremony. Fans such as Don Vasquez are looking forward to getting together at their local sports bar to watch Dodger games. Dawn started a Dodger meetup group in 2017 to bring together fans in Orange County. She's already planning to start meeting with her group again once more people are vaccinated. I think we've all been missing connecting with others, and I think baseball has always been an easy way to make those connections. Being able to watch games together makes this already tough times easier to get through, and I'm glad we're able to start getting back together again. But fans like Francisco can't wait to get back into the stadium, eat a Dodger dog, and share a beer with their buddies. Baseball's here. It's just it's excitement the whole time, you know? Like, it feels like it's going to get back to a regular season where that stadium's going to be filled. 
yeah, that's definitely a plan is see as many games as I can at Dodger Stadium. I mean, it's just, it's a whole different feel. I mean, and it's a way better feeling there than watching it on TV. For Annenberg Media, I'm Jacqueline Andrade. While the pandemic caused shutdowns and permanent business closures all over the world, a few USC students were actually inspired to launch businesses despite these conditions. Paris Wise has more on that. We got over 60 of you today. Woo! We're going to do this right. Meaning child's pose. Two yoga mats lie near a backyard pool on the grass. The mats face a phone mounted for recording with palm trees lining the sky behind. This is where Tiana Hanneman and her dad teach yoga virtually. Tiana Hanneman is an industrial and systems engineering student at USC. In October of last year, she opened a yoga studio with her dad in Oahu called Yoga Room Hawaii. I definitely think if it weren't for the pandemic, we wouldn't have our own studio because I think um, that pandemic pushed us outside our comfort zone prior to the pandemic, we were very comfortable where we were and just in this routine and nothing was there to sort of break up the routine and give us a little wake up call or a little time to reflect and think, hey, maybe we can do this right now. As in-person operations shut down, the Hanemans began holding classes online through virtual platforms. Yoga students signed up from all different parts of the world. That's definitely been a benefit in opening during this time is that we're all choosing to be here, even though we're all facing such um, personal challenges. The common denominator is that we're all showing up to our mat and showing up for ourselves. Hanneman had to instill that same spirit for herself in order to open her business. I finally had this big revelation recently where I realized that all my self-doubt sort of comes from myself and it doesn't have any origins or any evidence or anything to support it. That's when I realized, hey, I need to stop doubting myself and I need to um, change this inner dialogue that I have with myself and make it more positive, Um, but not in a toxic way, of course, but rather than thinking I can't, thinking how can I? Another USC student, Diamond Jones, saw an opportunity to move forward and start her business in the midst of the pandemic. Timing was honestly key for me. Joan's goal is to teach people financial literacy and help them improve their money management. That's why she launched her business called Bottom Line Co. She sells financial planners and study guides. I think people now more than ever are aware of what happens in a pandemic and you cannot rely on one source of income. So I think once people realize like, okay, you know what, this is a product that doesn't only educate me on financial literacy, but it also helps me make money and minimize personal debt. Jones had her challenges in getting the business started, but she had a lot of motivation to push through. I would say that from the beginning, it was definitely very risky for me. Someone who is coming out of paying $10,000 in debt. I'm a college student. I don't have much money saved up. So when it came to starting my business, I really didn't have the funds that were there. But whatever I saved up, I was willing to invest all of it. I'm like, I believe in it. And this is what I'm going to do. 
less than a year later, and Jones already feels her taking a chance is paying off. I would encourage any other entrepreneurs who are interested in launching a business, um, especially when it comes to online or the e-commerce platform, I highly recommend for them to jump on it right away. Don't wait. Um, this is the perfect time to do so. McLean Portis jumped into his passions for business and music during the pandemic. He is in USC's Business Cinematic Arts program. He created the business Live2 and now has over half a million followers on TikTok. I discovered unknown musicians um, and tried to help them start their career through telling their stories. And we built up enough momentum in order to, uh, going into this year, pivot into becoming a real legitimate record label that stands for um, discovering the unheard artists of the world. This is really just the beginning for Portis, but pursuing his passions head on has always been a part of who he is. It is the first like real legitimate business, but I've always had that mindset of being an entrepreneur um, and a filmmaker. Like I was the kid in high school that would just run around with a camera and it was always by my side. While this has been an idea of Portis's for a few years, it is flourishing under difficult circumstances. Yeah, so we signed our first five artists going into 2021. Um, what's exciting for me is I feel like we're finally in a position where um, the original idea I had back in 2018 to tell really legitimate long form and intricate stories about artists is actually going to be able to take place this year. Steve Mednick teaches people how they can start up businesses. Mednick is an entrepreneurship professor at USC's Marshall School of Business. The effect of the pandemic has been um, inconsistent. With some businesses, it, it really uh, put a grinding halt to their business. And, and uh, some of these businesses have been able to take advantage of uh, the fact that people's buying criteria has shifted a little bit and it's gone into their direction. These young entrepreneurs all have plans to continue to grow their businesses. I think Bottom Line Co. can one day become a bank and really help people understand um, money management and going back to financial literacy. So we realized that with this pandemic, a lot of mental health um, issues were uh, worsening. So we know yoga can definitely help with the mind-body connection. I've been probably number one a dreamer and number two an entrepreneur. So it's like... Um, I would rather sacrifice making money right now for building a movement that people really care about and then figure out later on once I've done that. These students have taken the risk and gone forward in launching a business they are passionate about despite the precarious times. Even though the pandemic was a difficult time for many, it opened the door for these young entrepreneurs for a future of possibilities. For Annenberg Media, I'm Paris Wise. The stress of living life in a pandemic hits students across disciplines, but pre-med students have been affected in particular ways. Some have been seeing fewer research opportunities, while others are finding new roles to volunteer their services. Annenberg Media's Danielle Smith shares how some pre-med students are uncovering a new sense of mission in the midst of a pandemic. Barine Gad is always pushing forward, looking for her first step and seeking out opportunities. She's a first-generation immigrant and sophomore pre-med student at Illinois Institute of Technology. 
Last March, she was working on an exciting research project at a cognitive neuroscience lab in Chicago. She says it was going really well. But just when the project was about to launch, everything stopped. I remember I flew out for spring break and I never went back. That was an opportunity and a project I was working on really closely that I was really upset that I felt like I almost lost and had to take a step back from. For Gad and other students in the highly competitive pre-med world, the coronavirus pandemic threw an unexpected curveball by shutting down projects, programs, and other internships they were applying for. This only made it harder for many pre-med students like Gad to find relevant opportunities. Pre-med students often feel pressure to achieve academic excellence and build up their resumes to compete for a spot in top medical schools. A lot of the times I'm thinking, um, is this the best option for getting into my career? Is this the best use of my time? And what gets really frustrating sometimes is I want to do something, but I'm like, is this the right thing to do? Is it going to support my future career? These days, Gad wakes up at 6.30 a.m. and spends the rest of her day mentoring college first years, tutoring kids in math, and writing newsletters for her organization, all while balancing her studies. Even professors are noticing the pressure ramping up on pre-med students. Rita Burke, an epidemiologist and assistant professor at Keck School of Medicine at USC, says she often hears pre-med students voice concerns about the pressure. Being a pre-med student is very difficult and challenging. It's very competitive. And a little competition is great, but it can certainly start to become unhealthy very, very quickly. And Burke says it's worse in the pandemic. One other thing that I thought of that students are really concerned about and view as a stressor is the opportunity to secure internships and to secure research uh, opportunities and experiences. For many, being in person made it a little bit easier for them. They voiced that they were able to walk up after class to talk to the professor and to ask for any opportunities versus here, they actively need to reach out. And some are a little bit more timid than others and find it more challenging than others. Despite Gad's heavy workload, she spent two months applying to more than 15 summer programs this year without much luck. And I'm not even getting rejected. It's just like, hey, we know you worked really hard on this application. And I'm like, yeah, it took me three weeks to find four letters of recommendations. I'm like, but we've decided to cancel the program. Usually when you put in work, there's an outcome. Um, It comes back to you and it feels like the past few months that hasn't been the case. Pharmacology student Justin Moore can relate. The junior at UC Santa Barbara says he worries the limitations caused by the pandemic will affect his chances of getting into medical school. Because of COVID, there has been zero research opportunities. It was all shut down. I was pretty close to a few um, back in like sophomore year, but my whole junior year has kind of been consumed by you know the pandemic, and I've lost a lot of precious time in terms of professional development. But in January, things started to look up for more. He started helping low-income patients as a medical assistant at Ocean View Dermatology in Santa Barbara, an opportunity he says he may not have gotten if there wasn't a high demand for healthcare workers during the pandemic. I wasn't the most experienced healthcare worker, um, but I was needed. Being out there with patients and actually interacting with patients has been amazing in terms of solidifying that I want to be a doctor and be in healthcare. But working as a medical assistant is not the only way to solidify a passion for healthcare. Burke advises pre-med students to reflect and use this time to explore their options. There are so many different ways to help people. It's not just pre-med. And for some folks, that is their path. But for many others, that is not. And that's perfectly okay. It's not that, you know, medicine is the way to help people. 
There are many other ways that are just as good. Recently, Gad started searching for other ways to explore her passion for helping people. At the peak of the pandemic, she co-founded an organization called Women and Gender Minorities in STEM. Her goal was to build a stronger community at Illinois Tech. And from there, in starting something we were passionate about, increasing gender minority turnout in STEM, so many doors have just opened themselves and presented themselves for me. And it really reminded me of how if I pursue what I love, it's almost going to present itself for me. Since its launch, the organization has hosted 17 events and amassed more than 150 mailing list subscribers. While it might not be the traditional med student route in um, shadowing and all those aspects, I think it still provides me a huge insight on patient care that medical schools are kind of looking for. Gad and Moore have found ways to keep getting experiences they need in healthcare and science, sometimes by taking on opportunities they didn't expect. And facing the pandemic, has reinforced their sense of mission to be in the medical field. For Annenberg Media, I'm Danielle Smith. It's not just students feeling Zoom fatigue this year. Many instructors are also burning out from the mindless humdrum of faceless Zoom participants and long video calls. Ironically, even well-balanced yoga instructors are finding themselves mentally drained from teaching yoga online. Katie Auerbach talked to a couple of USC-based instructors to find out more. USC student Anna Ballbag teaches yoga but had to shift to online instruction during the height of the pandemic. While temporarily living in Kauai, Ballback had the opportunity to teach in-person yoga due to the different COVID-19 guidelines. I I just love teaching in yoga, so I don't I I just love sharing it. But during during this time, I enjoy like just teaching and like giving people a little safe space to come to and just kind of sweat out the anxiety. Many yoga studios in the Los Angeles area have temporarily closed because of COVID-19. The restrictions prohibited in-person instruction of indoor yoga studios, but many of these guidelines are starting to lift by April and early May. Besides coping with the loss of in-person teaching in California, Ballback has had to face another challenge that online yoga classes have presented her. Will anyone show up? Because I, I was like, I can teach online everything, but will people be motivated to show up? Because the hardest, people don't realize the hardest part of class is just showing up, getting yourself to go to the class. Ballback admits she is quite attached to her studio in Kauai and will miss teaching there when she comes back to LA. She enjoys interacting with her students face-to-face and creating an in-person bond. It's just so much more fun when you can see people's faces, you can talk to them, you get to play the music loud, and you can tell if your voice is being heard. Like when you're on, on your laptop, you don't know if your voice is like getting cut off. You don't know how loud the music is. Like everything's off. Whether Ballback is in person or online, she brings her positive energy to her students. Ballback feels that yoga creates a safe space that everyone should be involved in. I think I never really had those conversations around mental health until I became a yoga instructor. And I didn't realize how much it had impacted me until the pandemic hit. That was USC student and core power yoga instructor Simran Kohli. Like Ballback, she uses yoga as an outlet in her daily routine. 
Coley stopped teaching yoga online because she misses the connection she makes in classes, but she continues to practice yoga because it's helped her stay grounded and true to herself during the pandemic. I'd walk away being so fulfilled and feel so whole. I got to reflect and say, there's a lot going on in my life right now. Like, what do I want to sit here and say for these next 60 minutes? She stayed connected with the yoga community by FaceTiming her fellow instructors and teaching online this past summer. I really thrive on the energy of others. And so when you're in the studio and everyone's smiling or everyone's sweating or everyone looks like they're about to die together, like that's the kind of energy that I think brings an entire class together. Both Ballback and Coley said that nothing, not even a pandemic can stop them from doing the activity that they love. And so I was like, I want to keep it up because like, it's kind of like riding a bike. Like you can pick it back up, but if you go a long time without doing it, you're kind of rusty, you know, and you kind of have to get back in the swing of things. And I love it too. So I want to just keep doing it. If anything, the pandemic taught them to do what they love, even when it's difficult. For Annenberg Media, I'm Katie Auerbach. Throughout the show, we've taken a look at how the pandemic has hit young people particularly hard, as they've been missing graduations, sports seasons, friends at school, and campus life. For our last story, Julia Orsonigo talks with college students on three different continents about how they have been dealing with the new normal. Like a lot of young people, I have friends and acquaintances living around the world. Many I keep in touch with only through social media. It's year two in this global pandemic, and I decided to check in with some of them to see how they're doing, beyond the usual sunshine and manicured Instagram post. Olá, meu nome é Luisa, eu sou brasileira. Luisa Teixeira is a 19-year-old from Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Every morning, she wakes up to the sound of birds chirping and dogs barking, and then she heads to her home gym to run for half an hour. She used to run outside, but since March of 2020, she's had to do it from home. This is a far cry from her past experiences in her city, which were full of warm days out with her friends. What I miss the most is being able to go to the beach and take a dip into the ocean, have my feet in the sand. I used to spend hours just sitting there enjoying the view, but now we're not allowed to do that anymore. Brazil is not expected to return to normal anytime soon. And this is the case for many other countries since vaccine distribution has been slow moving. Luisa says she feels the pandemic is stealing a part of her youth. I feel like I'm in a stage of my life where I need to meet new people. I need to have new experiences. I need to get a life, like actually live a life. Despite her desire to live more freely, she's been taking the necessary precautions. I am aware of the dangers of COVID. So I personally don't go out and like meet up with people. And it's been really hard for me because I tend to be very outgoing and I love meeting people. I love hugging people. I love hanging out, but I had just have not been able to do that. Hola, soy Sofía y soy de Buenos Aires, Argentina. Sofía Raquitín, a 20-year-old from Buenos Aires, was used to going on walks on the weekend along the bank of Rio de la Plata. On the clearer days, she swore that she could see all the way across to Uruguay. Now, she hasn't gone on that walk in months. Sofía says the most frustrating thing to her is she feels people in her country aren't taking the virus seriously. There are people that they don't care about others. Like They prefer for 
everything to go on. And if people have to die, then they have to die. Here in Argentina, a lot of people went to the beach and the parties continued. Sofia, on the other hand, prefers staying at home and enjoying time with her mom. Despite the challenges of living through a pandemic, Sofia says life in Buenos Aires was so frenetic that the slower pace is doing her some good. Before the pandemic, I was very stressed about work, friendships and everything. And like during the pandemic, I had time to like focus on myself and exercise each day. Cecilia Cecilia Vu is a 19-year-old born and raised in Vietnam. She hasn't minded the isolation brought by the pandemic. Everybody knows me as someone who really enjoys my own company. Like, I love being by myself. I love listening to music, watching movies, like dramas. I can do that, like, all day, every day. It's close to dinner service, and we're all scrambling. But I just, I think we're, we're going to do pretty good. I have a good feeling. Cecilia thinks that being an introvert has helped her cope and made it easier to entertain herself during this long year perhaps even better than other people her age. Teenagers, of course, like to party, like to hang out with friends, love being other people. But like me, they can also entertain themselves, can like watch Netflix all day, can be on social media, Instagram, Snapchat. Cecilia decided to take a gap year from her studies at USC to avoid taking online classes outside of her time zone. Cecilia has been spending her free year back home in Hanoi, enjoying the food and atmosphere she missed when she was living in Los Angeles. Vietnam has won praise for its successful handling of the virus, with few deaths and a relatively brief lockdown. We have been back to normal since like last August, September. Still, Cecilia is perfectly content with being a homebody. It's perfectly fine for me to do anything I want. I just don't do it. <laughs> Hola, me llamo Pilar Duriarte. Soy de la Ciudad de México. Pilar Duriarte, a 19-year-old from Mexico City, had just transferred to St. Andrews University in Scotland when the pandemic shut everything down. I definitely felt very lonely. Pilar says she was hit with a triple whammy, being in a pandemic, in a new school, and in a foreign land. During the COVID-19 pandemic, I actually got diagnosed with depression. The pandemic has definitely affected my mental health. It's made me feel a lot lonelier. I miss my friends. It made me harder at university for me to make friends. And that might have been a factor that eventually triggered my depression. After that, Pilar went back home to her family in Mexico City. She says she's grateful that she at least has had her family to lean on during this time. Their late night Spanglish talks about pop culture keep her going. But despite having support from her family, Pilar believes that teens and young adults face the greatest mental health challenges during this time. I don't have the fear that older, more vulnerable people have of getting sick. Because I know that if I get sick, it won't be that bad. But at the same time, I am missing out on a lot of like experiences that I'm only going to be able to live once. Like many other people her age, Pilar says she feels like she's missing out on crucial life milestones. People are always talking about, you know, how the college years are like the best years of their life and like they were so crazy. And I know that I won't ever be able to do that. Again, you know, it's it won't be the same thing to do that when I'm 30 or 40 or even like in my later 20s. It just won't be the same. It is very frustrating because I am missing out on this valuable time of my life. 
We're all coping differently, but no matter where you're from, maybe one lesson we can all take away from this year is to reach out more often and check in with loved ones. Perhaps soon, we'll finally be able to do that in person. For Annenberg Media, I'm Julia Sinigo. Thank you for tuning in. This podcast is produced by USC Annenberg Media, a student-run newsroom of the USC Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism. This episode was produced by Celine Mendiola, Kalina Cherzova, and Johnny Dorsell. Our executive producers are Jeha Joshua Chang and Ayana White. Our music was produced by Sam Fian and Polina Cherizova. This is a four-part podcast. Make sure to check out our other episodes in our series, Portraits of a New Normal. A huge thanks to our radio faculty, Shirley Jihad, Tina Rubio, and Edward Liftson, and a special shout out to our tech whiz, Sebastian Grubaugh. We miss them all so much and wish we can give them a big hug very soon. And if all goes well, we'll be back next fall in Studio B in the Media Center, where we hope you'll tune in to our award-winning show from where we are. Congrats to all the grads! Stay safe out there, check up on your friends and family, and have an awesome summer. For ARN, I'm Paulina Cherizova. I'm Johnny Dorsal. And I'm Celine Manjola.